At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Monday, April 10th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, or on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Recently, I visited the greatest machine humans have ever built. Wait, isn't that inside your brain? <laughs> no. I mean, your skull? <laughs> no. Humans no. didn't build that. Evolution... Well, they're working on it. Yeah, they're working on it. Elon still has a little ways to go. <laughs> I'm talking about the particle accelerators as part of CERN. Oh, that thing. Yeah, that mile-long series of particle accelerators that are smashing protons together, most famously the Large Hadron Collider, Hadron being a collection of quarks assembled together into a larger particle, which takes those items and smashes them together at near the speed of light to generate all sorts of particle products and uh, decays and conditions that simulate almost the exact moment of the Big Bang. So I've been uh, to a particle accelerator, and isn't it like you go into this ha- thing and there's all this stuff, but like you can't see anything happening? Yeah, they're particles. <laughs> like you definitely cannot see them. They're a little bit too small to see anything. But in terms of the physical size and engineering that goes into it, they're phenomenal because the detectors are enormous, like multi-story detectors with cables everywhere like the cable management that i have below my computer definitely doesn't cut it compared to what's happening there Uh, and these detectors have to be so sensitive down to like you know microseconds even less than that to detect little perturbations in particle decay to understand some of the most fundamental items of our universe you know i was visiting one detector and they're like yeah we're studying the conditions one microsecond after the universe began yeah, I, I like. I don't even know how you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but this machine led to one of the greatest discoveries in physics in the past generation, which is the discovery of the Higgs boson. They smashed some protons together, and in the decay, they noticed these muons coming off, which is basically like a heavier electron. And the analysis of that muon decay showed this kind of bump on the on sort of the graph, and that bump validated 
the existence of the Higgs boson, a fundamental particle that we've been looking for forever. And the field from that particle gives mass to every other particle. It's an incredible validation of the standard model that's existed for 40 some odd years. So we're done, right? Close up the LHC, put the padlock on it. Well, oh, it's all over. We found the Higgs boson. Done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that seems like kind of a waste. Yeah, so this is the open question, what's next for the LHC? And I talked to a particle physicist this week about all of the crazy particles they're looking for, really with an eye to one thing. We got to break the standard model. So this week, our guest is James Beecham. He's a postdoctoral researcher at Ohio State University, but he's never stepped foot in Columbus, Ohio, because he spent his entire career at CERN on the Atlas experiment. He's a particle hunter, really tasked with the idea of finding crazy particles that break the standard model of particle physics. And when I say crazy particles, he started using terminology that I've never heard in particle physics, like neutrinos that change flavor. Flavor, as a, as a physics term, that basically it's one form of neutrino and then it just instantaneously changes to another form of neutrino on its way to us See, magic from the center is, of the sun. Magic is just science we don't understand yet. Oh, I, somebody's seen Dr. Strange recently. <laughs> so on that note, we'll take a short break and be back with my interview with James Beecham. James, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. So it's been an exciting time to be at the Large Hadron Collider over the last couple of years with the confirmation of the Higgs boson. But the big question is really, what's next? We have this billion-dollar project that has been constructed, and there's so much more that we can do with it, right? Uh, indeed there is. In fact, we have just barely scratched the surface. Um, so when you say that the Higgs boson was discovered, that uh, that is, in fact, fantastic and amazing. It's one of like our shiniest, uh, you know, it's our shiniest and newest toy, and, and we want to understand everything about it. But kind of as you were intimating there, um, it's really just the the start of the research program. And it kind of it's unfortunate that I think a lot of people in the in the uh, the news or, you know, they have this impression that, the you know, the LHC found the Higgs boson and so far hasn't found anything else. And that's kind of, you know, it's like that's that's sort of it. And uh, what you know, what's what's the next step? What's the next machine beyond that? But to me, that's a little bit uh, unfortunate because we have just barely started taking data at the LHC. In fact, this is going to be a 20 year research program. We've taken about one percent of all the data we're going to ever take. And so, there, I mean, the, the work has just begun searching for new particles. Let's talk about the Higgs just briefly. This idea that we found the Higgs boson, we're done with it. That seemed not to be true when I was at CERN. People were talking about what was found was a Higgs boson. Can you tell us what that what they meant by that? Yeah. So the thing that we say, the precise statement that we have to say at the LAC, uh, you know, at, at Atlas and the CMS, the two experiments, Atlas is the one that I work on and CMS is the complementary experiment that uh, they're both designed to corroborate each other's findings on a wide array of uh, searches for new particles. Um, and so they both discovered a, a, a bump, an anomaly. Um, and so the precise statement that we have to make is, you know, it seems a little bit pedantic, but it's true. The, we have observed a new particle at a certain mass that has more or less the properties that we would expect from a standard model Higgs boson. <laughs> and so that's kind of a mouthful, but that's the precise statement because as you kind of were pointing out, 
the truth is that the thing that we have doesn't have to be just the standard model, plain vanilla uh, Higgs boson. So the, I think, as you know, the, you know, the standard model is this thing we're referred to capital S capital M. It's like the, you know, possibly the, the greatest intellectual achievement of humankind. I know that I'm, you know, biased of course, cause I work in this kind of thing, but it's, it's amazing because it, it is basically a mathematical theory that anybody with a, a you know, kind of a basic, uh, understanding, well, a little bit more than basic, but an understanding of things like group theory and relativistic quantum field theory. Okay, it takes a long time to get into those things, but in principle, you can get into those, and then you can write these, write down this theory, and it ends up with this thing called the standard model of particle physics, and it makes these precise predictions that we just go out and measure, and they're right there. It's really impressive, and it makes these. It, you have to measure a few parameters, and then it makes these very precise predictions, almost every single one of which has completely passed our experimental tests with flying colors. And the last remaining kind of guaranteed prediction of this theory, this standard model, was the existence of a Higgs boson. And in that case, it's the standard model Higgs boson. And so this was the thing that, you know, people had been searching for for like 40 years. And it's more or less the reason why the, the LHC, one of the main reasons why the LHC was designed in the first place. Um, but it was it was kind of that way. It, it almost kind of played out that way just by necessity, because that was like the last piece that we didn't have of this thing. Um, we were simultaneously in other experiments looking for new particles, you know, things that were beyond, we call it beyond the standard model physics, because there are so many other questions that are outside of the standard model that are still uh, unanswered, that have been unanswered for a very long time. So why are people saying a Higgs boson instead of the Higgs boson? Is it, is it the, the idea that there are different, potentially different types of Higgs bosons out there? Absolutely. Yes. So the, the thing that we see is this one, uh, this one, uh, boson, this one Higgs boson, that's the particle manifestation of something called the Higgs field, which is actually the more important thing for, for, uh, those of us in physics and actually for you, because, you know, if it were not for the Higgs field, atoms would not be able to form and you wouldn't even be here to ask these questions. But the, this, there doesn't have to be just one Higgs boson, um, in the standard model. That's all you need. But we, you know, we know that there's more physics beyond the standard model. And so one of the main, one of the main ways that we can possibly access this new physics is through what we call this, you know, kind of Higgs portal or the, 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 the Higgs, the scalar sector. Cause the weird thing about the Higgs is it's the particle manifestation of the only like fundamental scalar field. I don't know how complicated you want to get, but the only fundamental scalar field we know of in nature. And this notion that's a scalar makes it a very, a very strange particle, but there doesn't have to be just one of those. In fact, there can, there, there can be whole families of, of uh, Higgs bosons. And one of the most common, uh, the dis commonly discussed for a very long time extensions of the standard model is that there could easily be, uh, some heavier cousins of the, the Higgs boson that could also have charge and things like that, that could show up that are very easy things to add on to this standard model. Oh, so you're not necessarily talking about just breaking the standard model. You're talking about potentially just extending it. Indeed. And in fact, that's the that's the way that I like to think about it. I know sometimes a lot of people like to think about it's like, yeah, the LHC we're you know, now we're pushing forward in the energy regime. We we kind of want to break the standard model and, you know, see what's the how to how break our, our, our old paradigm. But, you know, that's that's good kind of like uh, startup culture talk. But it's not true, because at the end of the day, if we have some new theory that comes along that supplants the standard model, the standard models observations are still going to be true. So it's like we we can definitely add on top of that, and that's one of the one of the things that people have you know been thinking about for a long time. Like for instance, in this extended Higgs scalar sector stuff. So 
one item is that you're looking for more Higgs bosons, and maybe some of those are not the Higgs boson that we've seen before. What other questions is the LHC really looking towards? Because one of the reasons that uh, you're on the podcast is you brought up this idea when we first met was like, we're looking for all these crazy particles out there, which I thought was a strange turn of phrase for a technical term for a physicist to use. So what crazy particles are we looking for that are beyond the Higgs boson? Well, they're crazy because, and I, I, uh, that is definitely a technical particle physics term. Um, they're crazy because they are beyond this standard model. And the, we say this beyond the standard model, maybe it sounds a little bit kind of prosaic because it's, you know, we're literally just adding extra math onto the math that exists. But the reason why they're crazy is that the standard model is so successful and it's almost frustratingly successful as I think we were, you know, kind of intimated earlier because we, we've never been able to find uh, any any particles beyond this, any concrete evidence yet of new particles beyond it. And we know there have to be extended particles beyond the standard model because the standard model for all of its successes does not contain some of the other observations that we make uh, in other parts of physics that are absolutely 100% have to be there. For example, the standard model does not contain gravity. How can you possibly have you know two of the most the, the most successful uh, pillars of all of, uh, of physics, you know, quantum quantum field theory based uh, standard model and gravitation, you know, uh, Einstein's uh, uh, general general theory of relativity. Those two things hate each other. We can't put them together. And so we if we were to, for instance, to find some evidence of a particle like a graviton, there's a lot of different versions of what a graviton would be, it would be the, the particle of gravity. That to me is crazy because we've never seen any evidence of this. And the a lot of the a lot of the theories that we have that are kind of on the market at the moment for how to uh, shoehorn gravity into the standard model or kind of to get it to work to the standard model propose some kind of you know, some kind of wild things. So let's back up for a second for the benefit of our audience, because there's four forces in physics that are often talked about. The electromagnetic force, which governs most of our macroscopic life. The strong force, which is governs a lot of behavior in the nucleus. The weak force, which is also in the, in the nucleus. And then this gravity force, which is the weakest of them all. How would the LHC actually look for gravitons? Like, is it is this idea that if we smash things together at higher and higher energies, we might see something? Like, I, I'm trying to understand the the thought behind trying to search for something that is essentially one of the potential parts of the weakest force out there. Yeah, and to answer your question, yes, uh, the the way that we find new particles, whether at the LAC, whether they're gravitons or you know uh, Z prime bosons or or leptoquarks or something with very high masses, is that we smash together protons at the highest energy we possibly can, <laughs> and that's that's always worked for us in the past, and that's kind of why we go forward. But for gravity, as you point out, it's weak compared to the other forces of nature, and it's not just weak, it's like crazily weak. I mean, all of the compared to all of the other forces you mentioned, the um, strong, weak, and uh, electromagnetism, gravity is something like 10 to the minus 39 in, in strength compared to that. And that's such a bizarre difference that it makes people think think in different ways as to why this has, why our universe has decided for this is the way to go. 
And they kind of, you know, even like in that in very kind of speculative, strange uh, ways that, you know, they might seem a little bit science fictiony to begin with. But there once you, you know, once you kind of go through it, you realize it actually makes sense. For example, one of the postulates is that gravity could be weak to us because most the rest of it, it's almost like a lot of gravity has gone missing in a sense because there's no a priori reason for gravity to be so weakly different compared to all these other forces. One idea is that gravity actually may live in an extra spatial dimension beyond the three that you and I live in and that all the other known particles live in. And so what we're actually feeling is sort of like a three-dimensional, you know, three plus time, a a three-dimensional slice of gravity. And if we were able to observe these something in these other uh, hidden extra dimensions, we would be able to measure gravity as being just as strong as the other forces, which would make more sense uh, from kind of like a first principles but physics standpoint. That's such a weird notion um, that like, oh, it's so weak, it must exist somewhere else much stronger. I I, I kind of follow the logic of that, which is scaring me now. <laughs> I mean, it should, you know, it, I don't know if it should scare you too much, but I think it should definitely intrigue you. It should make you go, ooh, this is, this is an intriguing idea because part of the reason why this makes sense uh, when you kind of go through it is that all of the all of the the mathematics all in inside the quantum field theory before this idea the, the notion of the number of uh, dimensions necessary to make this make the theory work you know the standard model probably the particles and forces was always just kind of assumed to be three spatial dimensions there's no reason to think about more than that because you know we we all you know we exist in three spatial dimensions but people started thinking what if about you know started thinking about other spatial dimensions why three was chosen for our universe for some reason and they started playing around with different dimensions and suddenly they got to this idea where um, if you just go ahead and uh, accommodate, or if you add extra spatial dimensions, then you can accommodate gravity in a kind of uh, elegant way. The, of course, you know the proof in the pudding is that we have to find some evidence for that, and that's one of the things that we try to look for at the LAC. So let's play a round of what if. So why only four forces, and are you doing anything to look for something beyond that potentially? Absolutely. Uh, there's to answer the question. No, there's there's no reason why uh, we should only have four forces of nature. And in fact, there are lots of other observations that don't fit into the standard model at the moment that definitely um, imply to us that there could be other forces of nature out there. Um, one of them, for example, is dark matter. Uh, we could do, you know, you could do, you should do an entire show on, you know, LHC, uh, the LHC searches for dark matter, but dark matter we know exists because we have seen its effects on, on gravity or on the, on the cosmos due to gravity. But we also have never seen its particle form. We don't know what kind of particle it is. And, you know, we, we uh, you might say, why, why does it have to be a particle? I, I guess it doesn't have to be, but everything else in the past that we have, you know, it makes up about 80% of all of the matter in the universe. And so we would think that it would also have some kind of particle form. However, it apparently doesn't want to bump into our regular matter ever, if at all. And so this rate at which it bumps into our regular matter has to be so, so, so small. I mean, for instance, there's like a billion particles of dark matter that are going through your body every second, and you've never been bumped by one of them. So this rate at which it bumps into our standard model particles is extreme, is apparently really, really low. And one of the ways that could be true is that they're actually dark matter could prefer just to interact with itself in some other kind of like hidden sector forces. So there could be extra forces of nature in these kind of like we call them hidden sectors. But, you know, this this realm of 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 reality that doesn't like to uh, play around with our our standard particles and forces 
uh, very much, if at all. So how do you design an experiment to look for something that doesn't want to be seen? Uh, you do this very, very carefully with thousands of people over uh, several decades, and then you uh, take data for an extremely long time. And that second part is the is the key point. This is the the the, the thing that we find. You know, this is the key moment that we find ourselves at right now that we're confronting for the for the next for you know next couple of decades at the LXC. So this is a tension that you bring up. This idea of how do we actually operate the LHC? Do we turn it on for a long period of time and measure it and measure it and measure it? Or do we take it to, or do we upgrade it? Do we take it to higher and higher energies and then run it for a really long time? How is that playing out right now at the LHC? So the LHC itself, so the Large Hadron Collider proper is limited to, it's, it's limited by size to, you might think that 27 kilometers around, 17 miles around is, you know, a circle is, an, is big enough, but it's actually pretty small compared to what we would want if we wanted to go to higher energies. So the LHC has a built-in limitation with how high of energy it could get to. And so, you know, to, to, to go beyond that, we'll need a different, uh, a different collider. So the thing we find ourselves in, uh, uh, in, you know, confronting right now is we are going to take a very large amount of data over the next several years. Um, but then of course, as you pointed out, it's like, what's the, what do we do? You know, what, when we get, once we take a, a whole ton of data, you know, say like, uh, uh, you know, 50 times what we take right now how do we make the decision? It's like, okay, do we keep running like this uh, and take data, lots and lots of data to hope that that will have, let us access these extremely rare events. Like for instance, dark matter, it doesn't like to bump into us at all. So if we were to, you know, if you wanted to create even say one or two particles of dark matter, maybe we need to run the detector for, you know, a couple of decades. Um, or like you said, do we do this, you know, we use our uh, finite resources and instead put all those into building, you know, some uh, extending the energy capabilities of either this detect or is this collider or, you know, putting those resources into something, something larger. Um, to my mind, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm a particle hunter. I like to look for the, I, I like to go as high as in energy as possible. Um, but, and so I, you know, if I had to probably choose, I would probably choose the highest energy collider we can do at the moment and get up to high energies. But I also know that these subtle effects are possibly the more interesting ones. These ones, these these uh, these particles that may only show up uh, after several a couple of decades worth of data taking. I'm curious: is there a detector size that you really want? I know, you know, given the finite resources and and the colonialism of the of the Earth, the idea of building a much bigger detector is not reality. But put putting that aside. Is there a size of a, a collider that you would love to see happen? Well, if you're giving me uh, uh, if you're giving me a large amount of resources, almost infinite, then yes, there's a size that I would love, and this size would be a, a, a circular collider, you know, LHC style, about around the orbit of Neptune. Oh, why the orbit of Neptune? And that just gets you to energy levels that would be amazing, or is this just like I think Neptune is cool? <laughs> I, I, I do think Neptune is cool, but based upon some rough estimates, to, so you remember Einstein, right? I hope you remember Einstein. I've heard of him. Okay, so you remember E equals MC squared. And this, of course, is important. Everybody knows it, but it's important for particle physics, which is kind of what we've been intimating here with the size of the, coll the collider. So M is the mass. 
and mass is this intrinsic property of a new particle, right? So when I say we're looking for like a graviton or an extra exotic Higgs boson or a supersymmetry particle, these all have masses that are put there by nature. And we don't control that M. Nature does. And so if we want, but if nature has put this M at a very, very high place that we as a species have never been clever enough to build a collider to get up to an E that could even access it, we'll never know it exists and we'll never be able to study it. And the more important part for why I think Neptune is a good idea is that there's a lot of reasons, but the, the, the highest possible energy that we can kind of think of that is even interesting at all in our universe is something called the Planck energy. It's something at the Planck scale. So if you put together some of the, the standard, the, the, the known constants of nature, you put them together in a, in a certain way, like H bar and the gravitational constant, you get to this high energy, uh, where basically gravity, this thing that we've been talking about is so completely weak compared to the other forces, gravity and the other forces of nature, they have to have something to do with each other. And so between this insane Planck energy, and I mean, I can tell you what the number is, but you'll probably, you know, not believe me, it's like 10 to the 16 TeV, whereas the LHC is currently running at uh, 13 TeV. <laughs> That's a factor difference, we'll just say. Yeah, there's, there's some orders of magnitude there, yeah. Um, but so in between what we have here and the Planck scale there, we don't know actually if there is new physics, to be honest, we don't know if there's anything new beyond the standard model in principle, the standard model could be, we call it, uh, you know, we call it consistent up to the Planck scale, but that will never be able to, you know, tell us for sure, or in, unless we were actually to go to the Planck scale, we'd never be able to tell for sure whether gravity and, uh, and the standard model have something to do with each other. They, they would have to at that point. Um, and we have reason to believe that, you know, hopefully we have reason to believe that there are new phenomena that would show up in between this gigantic chasm between what we have here and what the, the Neptune scale would be. But based on some kind of crude approximations, uh, I think that some of my other uh, particle physicists colleagues would, uh, would um, argue with me here. I think that if we had an LHC style collider on the around the circumference of or the orbit of Neptune, we would more or less be able to get up to the Planck scale, maybe just below the Planck scale. So that would, of course, tell us that we need to go around, I guess, the galaxy or something. But. <laughs> I want to come back to a particle that I've heard a lot about, including experiments at CERN, the neutrino, which has made a lot of news. And in fact, I was surprised to hear how many neutrinos are out there. There's billions that are probably shooting through me and not really interacting with me very much. Let's talk about neutrinos and the work, the crazy questions that LHC is trying to handle with neutrinos. Yeah, so neutrinos, they are. They're a bit of an odd beast because, in fact, we even though we have not seen definitive proof of, uh, definitive evidence of a particle beyond the standard model, neutrinos actually provide us with the first concrete evidence of real physics beyond the standard model by stuff that's already in the standard model, if that makes any sense. Because we, we, we know that there's stuff beyond the standard model, like dark matter, we know it exists in the sky, uh, gravity, we know, we know gravity exists, you're sitting down, I hope. Um, but the, we know that neutrinos do this thing called oscillation. They can actually, they can change flavor and they, they, they can actually, so flavor, sorry. There, there's, there's three, you said there's, you know, billions of neutrinos going through and there, there are lots and lots of neutrinos around the, the universe floating around. But in terms of types, there's actually only three. Um, and they're associated with the, the, some of the particles that, you know, like the electron, uh, and then the muon, which is a heavier cousin of the electron and then the tau, which is even a heavier cousin of those. And each one of those has a specific neutrino that's attached to it. 
But the crazy thing about these neutrinos is that they can flip. They can like flip into different kinds. Uh, and they do this over a very large uh, time, you know, uh, distance scales. And this flipping is not necessarily in the standard model. So this is like, we know this happens and we, we've seen it, ex uh, that it exists, um, but it's not standard model physics. So this is like a, a really fascinating uh, realm of inquiry. Uh, and one of the ways that we, one of the things that we do with neutrinos at the LHC is once again, you know, take it, the LHC is like this big energetic hammer, right? We take advantage of the big energy. Um, at the LHC, we actually have the possibility of producing something called right-handed neutrinos that could have really high masses. The right-handed versus left-handed thing, does that make any sense at all? Well, so you're saying that a flavor, when the neutrinos oscillate and change flavor, they change properties, like they can be heavier than each other the, too? This it, is it, bizarre. Yeah. No, it's, it's quite strange. They're a very odd particle. Um, and they do this flopping between between kinds that we can just observe. And the way that they can do that, they can get away with that, is that their their masses. So we talked about this, you know, this notion of mass, this intrinsic property. Mass for neutrinos was for a long time was assumed to be zero, and they could not do this thing if they actually had a completely zero mass. But once we saw that they that this was happening, it demonstrated that neutrinos have a non-zero mass. I mean, to you and I, it's basically zero. It's like I forget what the what the actual you know uh, number is, but it's so close to zero that it's almost you know it's almost negligible. But because it's not zero, that changes everything, and it makes these little you know these little guys. Uh, uh, it gives them the possibility to do this crazy oscillation thing over an extremely long period of uh, uh, of time and space that we need completely different things to different detectors to look for. So people like down in you've heard of Ice Cube in Antarctica. Yes. 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 So those guys are, are looking for they, they can do things with cosmic gray neutrino stuff. Um, and there's a lot of great neutrino experiments uh, that are that are either that have been, you know, hey, maybe you remember the ones that for a long time, uh, for a brief period, people thought that maybe neutrinos were going faster than light. Yeah. And that's related to, I think, an experiment uh, coming out of CERN that was sending neutrinos over to a detector in Italy, correct? Correct. Yes. And it turned out uh, that I think one of their cables was switched. So, you know, always make sure you uh, rule out rule out all the possibilities of your detector before you make a result public. <laughs> so with neutrinos are this weird thing because they're generated by, you know, these uh, nuclear effects like fusion. So like the sun is, is sending out neutrinos everywhere. And even like nuclear reactors with their fission is sending out neutrinos. So neutrinos are like banging around us all the time. So how is the LHC generating neutrinos that you can track versus all of that other noise that is just happening? Well, for regular neutrinos, the, the ones that are in the standard model already, we use them in our searches for new, new physics at the LHC, like at Atlas and CMS, but we can't use them directly because as you kind of pointed out, neutrinos are just sailing around all the time and they're, not, they're also not interacting with you. And no, and if they are only doing this kind of interaction thing over very long periods of time or and also space, then our detectors, even though they're big, like Atlas is, you know, six stories high, um, it's still not big enough to catch a neutrino, to basically make a neutrino interact with anything in the detector uh, apparatus, for one, because neutrinos are, are neutral. That's where the newt part comes from. So when we produce neutrinos in our collisions, so the proton comes in both sides of this, uh, of the Atlas 
metallist detector. It's kind of like a, a, a soda can tipped on its side, filled with complicated electronics, six stories high. It comes in the, cent the center, hopefully some new particles created, and then this new particle lives for a tiny fraction of a second before then decaying into particles that hit our detector. But if one of those outgoing particles uh, is, say, a neutrino, it'll just sail through our detector completely unimpeded. It'll never hit anything. And you might think that's hopeless because, you know, if it sails through, there's no way for us to know it was there, except you remember energy conservation and momentum conservation. Hopefully you remember these things. Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's an amazingly uh, complicated set. So you're looking just for one of these oscillating flavors, as you called it, which is heavier and right-handed. Uh, well, so, so that would be the exotic version of that that we were looking for. The oh, so standard, it's not the even the version. three no. flavors that are out there. This would be no. like something else completely. This would be something else completely. Uh, sorry, I think I, I was conflating two different things or trying to describe them in parallel too quickly. The, when we see real neutrinos, uh, and when I say real standard model neutrinos, these are the three versions that we know and love. And the, these are the ones that do the oscillation that we know where they're studying, that people are studying other detectors. Those still can be produced, standard model neutrinos in our detector. And so they will fly out in our detector and we'll never see them because they won't interact with anything in the detector. But we can de infer their existence because there's an energy imbalance uh, in the other direction. So if you think, you know, if you had some new particle, or even like an old particle, let's just say it's a, you know, some like a, a Z boson with some other stuff on the other side. If you see a bunch of uh, uh, standard model particles hitting your detector in one direction and nothing in the other direction, that very strongly violates energy momentum conservation. So you can infer that there was something, some particle that carried away a bunch of energy in the other direction. And that is more or less a neutrino. It uh, <clears throat> could also be a dark matter particle, but you'd have to do a counting experiment to see uh, if that was, you know, if that was like a significant excess above what you were expecting. But for these crazy versions of neutrinos, these extremely high, uh, high, high mass versions, they would also possibly show up as missing energy or other particles. But we, they would only once again live for a very tiny fraction of a second um, inside our detector uh, before then splitting into very distinct signatures that we would be able to pick out in our detector that are that are uh, pick out from amongst the background of kind of rolling uh, background fuzz. So as you said uh, around the data that you've only taken, you know, 1% of the data of of the LHC experiment's life, it feels like we're barely scratching the surface of the questions that are out there to be explored with the rest of this 99% of the data. What do you see as the role of the larger role of the LHC over the next 20 years now? Is it really looking for these exotic particles or is it going to be something else entirely? So I think the two, my, my opinion, and this is the overarching opinion of, uh, of, you know, of people here at the LHC, the, those, my colleagues and I that are doing this, this research planning for the, for the foreseeable future for the entire run of the LHC is that we have to do two things in parallel. Basically, we have to continue our searches for the, the high mass, very exotic, uh, particles like gravitons or, or, you know, dark matter particles that may only show up. As instead of, you know, we often look for little bumps or big peaks on, on our data uh, 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 over like a, a smooth line. Um, but that doesn't have to be a very sharp peak. It can only possibly show up over a very long amount of time. So we have to look for these new, the, the, the new exotic crazy particles in addition to doing the very precise precision uh, measurements. That was a very nice turn of phrase precision measurements of the standard model particles themselves to see if we can find deviations from these predictions. 
And so these, this is a lot of what people are doing. So this, the Higgs boson itself, this, uh, this one particle that we found that resembles the Higgs boson, one of the main things that we're going to be doing for 20 years is exploring its properties. Because we, we don't actually create so many Higgs bosons. They're also a pretty rare process, but we create enough that we can, we can study the, the specific decay modes of this particle. Once you know, in the standard model, once you know what the mass, once you've found a Higgs boson, you know its mass, and then this, the standard model takes care of all the predictions of the rest of them for you. So you can very much, you know, very uh, precisely uh, uh, measure how often the Higgs boson decays into, say, two photons versus the amount of time that it decays into, say, two Z bosons. And you can measure these as precisely as possible. And since the Higgs is, you know, the scalar sector thing, the, the Higgs, Higgs uh, sector is a very strange sector of the uh, standard model, it's one of the best places that we might find our window into exotic physics, into physics beyond the standard model. And so we have to measure these Higgs properties very precisely to see if we can find a deviation from them and hopefully find new particles that could, that could uh, connect up with the Higgs. So we have to do these searches, the, the specific searches for, uh, or the, sorry, the, the precision measurements of, uh, of standard model particles like the Higgs and stuff, in addition to making sure that we are sensitive to the, the big, heavy, exotic particles that may only show up after a long, long amount of uh, data taking. So these kind of have to go in parallel. So with all of these discoveries that have largely confirmed or, or aligned with the standard model... How does it feel as a particle hunter, as you described yourself just now? Is this the golden age for this? Are we going to see a surge of physicists going into this field because there's so much to do? Or are we kind of like, you know, reaching a level of maturity now where it is things are going to shift? I absolutely hope that people around the world and, you know, especially students, people that are, that are thinking, of, you know, and, and children thinking about getting into science fields. Uh, I would hope that some physicist out there, you know, she's probably a little girl or something, and she she's listening to this and she's thinking, hmm, particle physics, is it pretty much done? The answer is absolutely not. And we need as many people as possible to come and help us. Um, because to my mind that, you know, this notion that the Higgs boson was discovered and, we, and it's great and we pat ourselves on the back and we study everything about it. But the Higgs boson discovery only answered one question that was uh, was you know outstanding in particle physics before 2012, before the announcement. It, it and all the other ones are still open. All these open questions are completely there. And the Higgs actually raised more questions than it answered. One very quick uh, example: the Higgs boson mass that we found it at, this M uh, place that we found it at, it it would only make sense really in kind of like a, a you know uh, an intuitive way if we found some other particles around it, like supersymmetric particles. But we don't see those yet. So if we run for the entire uh, rain, run of the LHC or even the next few years, and we still don't see an evidence of supersymmetry particles around us, that makes us think that our universe is a little bit strange. Why did it choose that value of the LHC? And it'll make us start thinking in new, completely different ways. So like, this is actually the most important moment in particle physics history, because in the most exciting moment, because there are no more guarantees with what we're going to find. The Higgs, Higgs is a fantastic discovery, but it's more or less guaranteed to be there. We don't have any more guarantees. And so we have to kind of change our mindset in terms of like explorer uh, uh, status. We, we, are, we are almost like map makers. We have to map out the data frontier, take as much data as possible, you know, exabyte level data sets, you know. And, and in addition, we also have to go to higher energies. So like this is the most exciting time to become a physicist, in fact, because all of the open questions are still there and they need new ideas and fresh, fresh takes on them to, uh, to, to help us make progress. 
and the open questions are still there. And just by this discovery, this completion of the standard model, we have actually raised more questions based on the thing that we have observed with the Higgs than we've answered. It's kind of odd that as a particle physicist, you're excited that there's even more questions now than there were a few years ago. But I guess that's what it means to be a particle hunter is you're always hunting the next question as opposed to the next particle. James Beecham, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. So I have to say when, you know, at the top of the show, you were talking about the standard model being broken, it made me kind of panic a little bit inside thinking, oh, my God, am I going to have to relearn all the physics I ever knew? And Dr. Beecham was kind of, he was suggesting that although some of the fundamental aspects of it might change in terms of how we interpret them, the data are the data. And what we've observed so far is not going to change. And we still have to account for that. So it's not necessarily like we have to completely rethink everything that we know about particle physics, which in my mind, I know very little. So there's not a lot to rethink to begin with. Wouldn't it be exciting, though, if we were wrong? Well, we're definitely wrong. Isn't that isn't that the implication? We just don't know how wrong and where we are wrong. That's right. I mean, if we can't explain through particle physics, how gravity works, like there is no graviton right now, and that we have no idea how dark matter works. And if dark matter is actually matter, and that's how we know it to be, there's some mass out there. Why isn't there a particle associated with it? Or is it more that we just haven't seen that particle and it's partially because it's dark? That's kind of interesting to me. And what it means for a machine like this is really fascinating is that tension between let's make it the biggest thing ever. And you heard him like, let's build a machine out past the orbit of Neptune. Then we can really get into this. Um, it really poses that it's this interesting tension between how do we actually collaborate to answer some of the most fundamental questions in this world. And when we're thinking about stuff like how do we get to Mars? That question is no longer one of, well, the U.S. is going to invest and, and we'll get a rocket together and train up some astronauts and here we go. It has to be all of these countries coming together, pooling resources to address one question. And if there's one thing I really walked away from my trip to CERN from is that it's the first time I really saw science, really fundamental science, as an agent of peace and collaboration. Well, yes. And I and I think, you know, I think that's an optimistic view and a view that, you know, I hope uh, is going to turn into reality. But I also know that, you know, we had the opportunity in the US to build a large hadron collider, and we just couldn't get ourselves together to do it, right? We couldn't get the support from the political or, you know, foundations, whatever, to actually put the money down and do it. So, you know, that already seems like, okay, that might have been possible only in Europe, because there was so much collaboration between countries and, you know, so much sharing in the European economy. I mean, it doesn't look like that's the way our world is going right now with Brexit, and, you know, with sort of fractionation. And, you know, certainly in terms of uh, funding for fundamental science, that seems like one of the first things to get cut out of budgets, uh, because it's not so easily applied. I mean, how is understanding dark matter going to change my life tomorrow? We don't know how it's going to change my life tomorrow. And I've, you know, I'm an advocate of basic science research because of that 
you know, unknown. We don't know. But for a lot of people, they want to cure Alzheimer's disease or cancer first and, you know, argue that all the money has to go into uh, saving humanity, which, you know, even even just, you know, providing drinking water to the majority of humans. This is a callback to a show we did with Michael Hiltzik, um, you know, last year. And he he's a reporter for the LA Times who talked about the era of big science really coming to an end. And But what I think is fascinating is we've done a lot of shows recently that really intersect politics, personal politics and, and science, you know, whether it's talking about drinking water or talking about quality of life or disease. You know, after doing a number of those shows, listening to a number of shows, talking to somebody talking about like, yeah, hey, we don't know what happened at the beginning of the Big Bang was refreshing. It's something it like ignited something, this curiosity and wonder that I think we can't get away from. There is something innate in us, at least I believe, that's going to keep asking that question. So yeah, maybe in the short term, we don't have the will as a society to pool resources to address some of those questions. But I think that's cyclical. I think we'll come back to the point because we can't hide from those questions forever. Because somebody is going to keep asking them, somebody is going to keep pushing forward, and somebody is going to bring people together to say like, hey... Let's spend the money because we're going to keep asking this question. And you know what's really interesting? The next question after that. Yeah, but so let me ask you this. Can you think of an event that could happen in our world that would make it more important to for us to turn to understanding the fundamentals of particle physics? No. I mean, I can think of one. Nu- nuclear war. Oh, sure. <laughs> right? That... Or, you know, some kind of mass extinction event uh, that, you know, f- really changes the way our world looks, then I think all of a sudden, if we have to get off the planet. Fair enough. I don't know what's happened. Like, usually I'm the cynic, I think. <laughs> like, now I'm the super optimistic one, uh, uh, for once. Uh, sh- sure, that's true. I'd like to think that um, the collaboration is going to be seeded by by war or, um, or a need. I mean, there's all sorts of hi- human history that says that you're right. <laughs> there's no <laughs> doubt about it. But For once, I hope I'm wrong. You mean you hope I'm wrong? No, I hope I'm wrong too. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgul, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you. We could not do this show without you. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tomber.com, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, which particle you think we have left to discover, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. The answer is the Hari particle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rianjian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. 
The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.